This series reminds me that whether we realize it or not, we are surrounded by mystery. Always around us, life, God, others, so much more mysterious than we want to reduce things down to be. And I just need to tell you that in this series on the Trinity, I have felt acutely a proper sense of inadequacy. You know, we, we do series, uh, tensions and tough talks and all the feels, and I love those series, and I love what we do and why we do them, and we start with the human and try to intersect that with the divine, and that's good and true and right, and then we do a series on the Trinity, and we're like, oh, yeah, you, you, you guys go ahead and talk about three in one, infinite mystery. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I look at it, and I feel properly small and limited by language to try to articulate who God is and how this all works and what it has to do with our daily lives. But there's another sense for me that I'm coming to really, really appreciate as we've done this series on the Trinity, and that's this sense of awe and this sense of worship and the sense of we're just scratching the surface of talking about God and being reminded of that and just coming to a place of worship. So I hope this series has, uh, doesn't have to have that effect upon you, but something to, those, to that end, to see the transcendence and the greatness of God. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name's Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director here at Mount Horeb. There's more people in the 1045 than in the nine o'clock. My assumption was that it was a very difficult night for all of you football fans out there for both Clemson and Carolina. You guys maybe woke up, cried yourself back to sleep, and then cleaned up and came to church, something like that. It's good to see you and to be with you here this morning. I want to also shout out to those joining us online, wherever you may be. Shout out to my family joining us from Missouri. Uh, my wife texted me this morning, and she said this, uh, good luck, can't wait to see your outfit on you. <laughs> Feast your eyes on this, babe. <laughs> Nobody else gets that permission, all right? <laughs> and uh, I want to speak to that for just a second, because you're like, wait, your family's in Missouri, what's going on? Like, what are you doing here? Like, you've asked me that, but not necessarily with that tone of voice. Well, we moved here two Mays ago, and... Uh, Right, right at the beginning in the thick of COVID and came here and in some ways it was a great year and for like most of us in some ways it was a very difficult year. And it was very difficult for the majority of my family uh, throughout that year. And so uh, about 10 months in through a lot of prayer and a lot of challenging conversations and a lot of lost sleep, we came to the realization that um, for the sake of the family, we just needed to move them back to a place that felt familiar and felt comfortable and felt like home. And that was a, a difficult decision for us to make because I've come to love you and I've come to love Mount Horeb and I've come to love the leadership and the mission of this place very, very much. And I, I said to the lay leadership, we have some incredible lay leadership here and some incredible senior leadership here. And I said, hey, I don't f this is what we need to do but I don't feel like my relationship with Mount Horeb is over just yet. So I pitched this idea. I said, so for the remainder of this year, like for at least for the remainder of this year, can we talk about, I'm a remote employee. I work for so many hours. I come back twice a month. I preach on those weekends and then I stay for a few extra days and I meet with some staff, meet with some team and try to keep ministry going. Meet with some congregation members. I've had some amazing times with you even this last two weeks. And uh, to, to their credit, and I'm, I said, it would be a great, grace to my family. Like, make no doubt. 
Like while we figure the next steps out, it would be just a super gift to our family. And they said to me, well, we haven't done this before and we haven't seen this done before in church work, but we're gonna give it a shot. And I was so humbled and so thankful for this church and your leadership and we feel really supported in that. And I just wanna kudos to your leadership here. Not because I'm so amazing, but because their grace and generosity and forward thinking to say, well, let's, let's try this out. Who knows? And uh, it's an honor to be with you for the time that we still have through this year. And if it was for just a season of COVID, then with all my heart, I'm so grateful to be a part of it with you. And I know we're not out of the woods on COVID, but it's been a pleasure to be a pastor in this place. All right? So thank you for that. We've got to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I'm already four minutes through my intro, and I've only got two hours. We got to get going here, friends. Preacher humor. It can be so bad. I'm just reminded that earlier, Pastor Trevor said, one, two, three, grunt to like all the men in the room. <laughs> Pastor Trevor, what is that about? One, two, three, grunt. I'm having trouble focusing on the message because of him. I'm excited to close up this series on the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-equal but not the Father and not the Son, one person, three expressions, one entity, and yet expresses himself in three different manifestations. And the Spirit can be a little bit difficult to kind of put our minds around because um, it's, he's a little more abstract. And when I say he, I don't necessarily uh, ascribe gender to the spirit. The spirit is transcendent over gender, both male and female. When God reveals himself, he says, I ha he reveals himself as both masculine and feminine qualities. He says, you know, male and female come together. Together they represent my image. So the spirit transcends gender, but I will follow along with the biblical language. And the biblical language says that the spirit is not a it but a he. And in Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Hovering over the waters. You know, I think the Spirit's difficult because he can be a bit more abstract. You got Father, you got Son, then you got Spirit. And the Spirit shows up in quite a bit different ways that we see. And I think often we come to the Spirit and we make two different errors. Two different errors when it comes to the conversation of the Holy Spirit. One of the errors, we trivialize the Holy Spirit by just ignoring him completely. We don't have conversations about him. We ignore him. We just talk about the Father and the Son. The other, the other trivialization that we do is we ascribe almost everything to the Holy Spirit. Like, Holy Spirit, what clothes do you want me to wear today? And where would you like me to go eat lunch today, right? And we trivialize the will of God. And if, I mean, if that's the case, like, the Spirit's always speaking in Spanish to me because I've always got Mexican food on the mind, if you know what I'm saying right? Lunch, anyone? Yep, Mexican food. All right. But the Spirit, it's important for us to understand that we don't want to neglect Him, but we also don't want to trivialize Him by saying, well, everything, everything, everything. Genesis 1, He's hovering above the waters. How does the Spirit show Himself to us? Second Chronicles 5, He comes down like a cloud in the temple. Isaiah 44, 3, the Spirit is likened to water, the prophet says, I will, pour out my, I will pour out water on the thirsty ground. I will pour out my spirit on those who are thirsty. He shows up at Jesus' baptism like a bird. It's Grace Marie and her birding. Like a dove. He shows up like tongues of fire. He shows up like the wind. Jesus says, you don't 
see the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. And yet, you know what it exists. He says, so it's like, that's what it is for everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like wind. My wife, she has uh, experienced God through touch, tactile person, and yet he's spirit. So one day in college, she said this, God, I need a hug. I just need a hug. And she said, in that moment, a gentle breeze blew over her. And she said, ever since then, every single time that she is outside and she has asked God to show her his love and give her a hug, a gentle breeze rushes over her. And I've talked to people who've lost loved ones. They've lost loved ones. And often in those moments, there's some form of a manifestation of a wind or a breeze or a gust of an exhalation of breath. And did you know that the word for spirit is pneuma? Everyone say that with me, pneuma. Very good. It can be translated as spirit, but guess what? It can also be translated as wind or breath. And when God creates people, he gets face to face with them and he does what? He breathes the breath of life into them. He breathes the spirit into them. So in some way, shape, or form, every person we ever meet has the spirit of God in them. Not in a saving way necessarily, but in a sustaining way. And you say, well, that's just wind. That's just fire. That's just a bird. That's just water. That's just a cloud. Is it? For centuries, Christians didn't think so. And just because we can explain it away doesn't mean we've explained it. The Spirit, according to Psalm 139, He's everywhere. This is how we interact with God. As we just said in the Nicene Creed, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Father and the Son dwell in the dimension known as heaven. The Spirit is how we interact with God. He's it. That's who we pray through, his power we experience. He fills the church. He fills believers. He also fills the world with God's goodness and laughter and glory and joy. The Bible says that the Spirit has a will, 1 Corinthians 12, that the Spirit has a mind, Romans 8, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. And I don't think God's easily offended. I really don't. I think he's got way more patience than we give him credit for. Doesn't have an ego. Most humble person you could ever meet but yet we can live in such a way consistently to resist him that makes him feel grief. Because God wants the best for us. And we have a consistent knack of choosing what's worse for us. This person of the Trinity is how we interact with God. And here's what I want to say. If, if, if Jesus mission was to came, come and seek and save the lost and rescue us and clean us uh, and place us in the life of the Trinity. He did it through the power of the Spirit. Here's what I want to say. To live life in the Spirit is to live life in the Trinity. To live life in the Trinity is to be transformed by the Trinity. It's to be transformed by the Trinity. We change by being in community. That's a basic way to say it. It's simplistic, I understand, but the psychology of change happens by being in relationships. And one of the primary ways we will experience our full potential, our full Christ-given potential, who he originally created us to be, is by being in the love relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Augustine put it like this, that the Spirit is actually the energy or the love dynamic that the father has for the son and the son has for the father. 
So good. I don't think that's all there is to be said, but I think that's a great place to start. People today talk about the importance of team dynamics. Some of you work on a team. You have a great boss. You have a great home culture. Some of you are a great boss, and you know what it is to be with a good coach or a good leader, and you're like, this team feels something like heaven. Do you know why that is? Because what was God doing before he created the world? He was perfectly satisfied, perfectly self-sufficient in relationship with himself. For eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, we change in community. The idea of community is because God is a communal God with himself and says, ah, I want you to be in this relationship dynamic. Let me show you a, a painting. It probably says more, says it more effectively than the rest of my sermon. So let's go ahead and look at this painting together. This is a 15th century Andrei Rublev, a Russian Christian. He painted this. It's gone down as one of the best paintings of the Trinity in history. He painted this because his country was in turmoil. There was war, there was strife, there was violence, there was toxicity, um, sound familiar? And uh, he wanted to paint the Trinity because he said, I want to show the love and the uh, relationship that the Father and the Spirit and the Son have, and I want people to meditate on that and think to themselves, what if we were caught up in that dynamic? How would things change and how would things transform? And so you see this this trinity here, and on the left you have Father, and there's a lot we can say, but I can't say it here. On the left you have Father, in the middle you have Son, and on the right you have Holy Spirit, and the trinity is one. The trinity is one. That's why they're all the same size. They're all the same shape, and they all have the same faces. I thought that was just a brilliant maneuver. Same faces. They all have a staff in their hand. It's quite hard to see, but they all have a staff in their hand. The trinity is one, and yet the trinity is three. So the The garments that they have are all the same garments, but they're different colors, three different expressions. And if you notice, what's key for me is if you can quite make it out, the two heads on the right, the Son and the Spirit, their heads are deferring to the Father, and the Father's head is deferring to the Spirit, and their hands are each pointing one to each other, one to each other. The relational community is always in flow. It's always in flow so that we don't get fixated on one. In fact, there's this incredible love and incredible humility and deference that the Father has for the Son. I'm sending the Son. This is Him. He's going to glorify me. I'm going to lift Him up. So the Father points to the Son, and the Son points to the Father, and they point to the Spirit, and the Spirit points back, and there's this constant motion, this constant Trinitarian flow of love. And Rublev's aim was to say, yeah, what if you got caught up in that? This love and humility and deference and pointing to each other and serving one another and giving to one another and saying, no, 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 don't look at me, look at him. No, 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 don't look at me, look at him. No, don't look at me, look at him. What if that dynamic was in our marriages? How would we be transformed? What if that dynamic was in our classroom? How would it transform the classroom? What if that dynamic was in our workplace, in our social media? Oliver Clement put it this way, it's not a question of thinking about the Trinity, but in it. Starting from the Trinity is the unshakable foundation of all Christian thought. And the whole point, he's commenting on this 
painting, there's something larger going on in the painting too. What is it? What is the aim of the artist upon the observer? Hold on to that thought. Here is how the Spirit places us in a relationship and what the Spirit does in the Trinity and how it helps us change. First of all, God's Spirit teaches us. God's Spirit teaches us. Can you remember your favorite teacher? You remember when you were growing up who your favorite teacher was? You can probably remember who it was. You can probably remember their name. You can remember their classroom. You can most likely remember exactly why it was that they were your favorite teacher. Mine's Miss Norris. I loved her because she was kind. She was patient. She was gentle. She saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. She actually came to a wedding shower that uh, me and my wife had. And she told my parents, Chad is gold. I'm reminded of the scene in Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams plays Professor Keating and he's sent to this staunch Ivy League school and he's supposed to teach these boys English and be passionate and one of the homework assignments he gives to them was, you gotta write a poem by the time you come back and they show up in class the next time and all of them have written their poetry except one, Ethan Hawke, known as Todd in the film. And he said, all right, Todd, what's your poem? And he said, Eyes looking down at his feet, it's usually a nod of shame. I didn't do it. He said, well, I gave you assignment. Why didn't you do it? And he said, I didn't do it. And Professor Keating in that moment, knowing what it was to be a brilliant teacher, said, oh, everybody, everybody, gentlemen, uh, Todd thinks that all of his work will be trash and garbage, and he thinks that everything he has to say about the world won't matter anymore, and you're all going to laugh at him, and he starts to kind of call him out, and then in a one, two, three grunt type of moment, he uh, pulls him up, and he says, I gets this Walt Whitman poem, and he says, I want you to make a, a loud scream, a loud yawp, and he gets him to start small, and then he gets him to finally shout, and he shouts it out, and then he covers his eyes, and he spins him around, and he looks at a picture of Walt Whitman, he says, look at that, what do you see? Don't think about it, tell me what you see, and he starts to speak, and then the kids in the class laugh at him, he says, don't listen to them, don't think about it, just tell me exactly what you're seeing, and say it, and all these words begin to gush forth from Todd, and he says some of the most brilliant and yet tragically beautiful poetry. He stops, and he sits down, and Professor Keating says, don't forget this moment, and the Spirit looks at us and sees potential, because he's a good teacher, and the Spirit looks at you and me and sees possibility, because he's a good teacher, and the Spirit looks at us and knows the problems that we ourselves have put in our own way and he helps us break down those walls. John 14 says this, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the helper, not the condemner, not the scolder, not the lecturer, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. God knew that our hearts would be troubled and that we would be afraid. And so he sent the Holy Spirit as a teacher and a helper. And what does he teach? He teaches us what we have already learned about Jesus in confirmation and in concert with the scriptures. When it comes to the school of the Holy Spirit, the syllabus is the scripture. 
when it comes to the school of the Holy Spirit, the syllabus is the scripture. But he's not a magician. He's not a magician. Any of you, maybe you students, ever been in class and you forgot to study for the test, right? And you get into class and you're panic attacking. Is that a word? And all this anxiety comes up and you do what I've done a couple times. You throw a Hail Mary, right? Like, okay, God, help me know what's on the test. Come on, you've done it. And I sometimes wonder if, like, God doesn't look back at us and say, did you study for the test? Because God doesn't magically put things that we haven't learned in our head. He reminds us of what we've learned, and it's difficult for him to remind us if we haven't placed it in our mind to begin with. That's why it's important to meditate, to come to classes, to listen to your podcast. How, I'm not, I don't care about the medium, but to get into the scriptures and to learn and to be challenged and to grow because the spirit grows our life and teaches us in concert with the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, all scripture is God breathe. There's that word again. It's God breathe. This is a, a wooden translation would say God exhaled. God exhaled. It's almost like God wrote this book. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the ways that we become equipped for, for the work that God has called us to is that we read the scriptures, we read in community. That helps us not to just go away. I'm surprised by some of the anti-educational sentiments in some Christians. But it helps us not just go away by ourselves and, you know, say, hey, God, speak to me. And then we come up with this interpretation or we come up with this meaning. Well, God spoke to you and it means this. Uh, that can, you know, we can fall into a lot of trouble like that. But we read in community. We read with our family. And I have this idea and we talk it through. And we're not ashamed or embarrassed to talk it through. And we bring it out into our small group or in our discipleship class. And we talk it through. And maybe someone shaves the edges off a little bit or, okay, that's not comfortable for me, but I don't know exactly why. Let's explore this together. We read in community, but we also read in community of the past. We look back. We, we're not anti-historical. We look back at the tradition of historical interpretation in the church, and we say, yeah, well, let's examine this. Sometimes tradition needs to change. Please hear me. Sometimes tradition has to go, and we need to evaluate, and we need to rethink it. But the burden of proof is on us not necessarily the tradition. We read in community. How did the church think about this? How did they? That's, that's where you're gonna find most of your writings on Trinity. It's the early church. We read in community. It protects us. It helps us. And God the Spirit teaches us. God also trains us. He teaches us. He also trains us. God the Spirit trains us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 and 10 says this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service. It's talking about spiritual gifts but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, and it lists those gifts. And then it says this, to another, distinguishing between spirits, or what we will call discernment. Like how, how does God train us? He trains us with discernment. But what I want you to see is the heart behind this. God, in order for us to live fulfilled and purpose-driven lives, in order for us to find that and how we tear the corner off the darkness, 
We're going to know it through how we've been spiritually gifted. What is that thing that God has given you? And it's a variety. Look what it says, variety. It's different. What I have, you may not have, or you may have, and what you have, I may not have, and all the vice versa. But what is your gift to say, this is how I contribute back to the world? Because this is what he says. When you've been given a spiritual gift, you use it in service to others. And when you use it in service to others, you start to realize, hmm, this is what I was made for. This actually, I like this. It's to serve others. It's the same spirit, but it's for the common good. There is a, a temptation today to use our gifts to glorify the one who's gifted. We understand that, right? But God gives gifts to grace the church and glorify the giver. There's a lot of G's in that. I looked at that statement and I thought, can I add a few more? Huh. And then I didn't. God gives gifts to grace the church and glorify the giver. There's a great temptation today to try to use what God has given to us in order to build ourselves a platform so that we can get noticed. Christian, non-Christian, pastors are certainly not immune to it. The great temptation to become a Christian rock star, a Christian celebrity, a big timer, a mega church pastor, high profile. To do something with the guise of spiritually serving all the while while it's really self-serving. We don't always get to know who's doing it and the reasons they're doing it. We don't get to see people's hearts. Who can do this? I can do it. That's why I pray to God sometimes, dear God in heaven, don't ever let me think I'm more than I am. Don't ever let me big time anybody. Let me sharpen my skills and my gifts and become a better version of myself for the sake of others. Keep me humble. There's this... Uh, podcast that some people listen to, and it's about a megachurch pastor and the rise and fall of his church over in the Northeast, and uh, you might have heard of it. You may have read some of this person's books, and this podcast is pretty revealing of how some of the behind the scenes went, and uh, it's pretty honest, and it's easy. The great temptation is to look out the window and to be like, oh, man, how does this person, how do they, how are they, they get so lost? Like, how are they playing God? Like, I don't understand. It's kind of all ego. It's all megalomaniac type stuff. The great temptation is to think, oh, yeah, that's you out there. When I think the Spirit is saying, you can identify it because it's somewhere in you. How is that working in our lives? One author put it like this, whenever there's a lot of bravado and a lot of ego and a lot of certainty and it's just so loud, the person's talking so loud, it may not be God. I think that's true. God, keep us humble. There's this gift of discernment that some people have and it's great if you have it and it's great if you have people in your life with it. 
But that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook because there's this also growth in the practice of discernment. Hebrews 5.14 says this, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it means that we practice discernment. Now, some people say, well, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? How do you know in such a way that it's God leading you and guiding you? And I would just say this, well, are you asking how you know in such a way that this will plan will all work out perfectly and that there will never be any loss and never be any pain and never be any obstacles? Yeah, 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 I'm asking that. Yeah, well, we don't get to know that. That's not how we know, and that's not discernment. According to Hebrews 5, discernment is try, practice, fail, try, practice, fail, try, practice, fail, and learn. Some of you beat yourself so, you beat yourself up so hard on your past because you failed in the past, but you remember the past. This is why memories, we have memories. We remember the past not to shame ourselves. We remember the past to move forward and to learn from our mistakes. That's why we remember the past. What did it teach me? How do I move on? And we listen and we keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I've never heard the audible voice of the Spirit, but I think he leads us and guides us through circumstances, through people, through Scripture, a lot of different ways. Some of you don't know this, but I was a music major uh, in undergrad, and my wife was a music major. We were vocal majors, and you had to pick a minor, so I picked piano, and uh, we had to go through theory and ear training. And in one of my first ear training classes, they said this, all right, you're going to have a blank sheet of music, and we're going to give you one note. We're going to give you the key of C, no sharps or flats. And what we're going to do is we're going to play, uh, you know, two measures. Here's the time signature. We'll play two measures. Here's, here's your note. You give you one note. And we're going to play it, and you can't see it, but you're going to listen for it, and then you're going to try to write it down. And I was like, this is impossible. Who can listen to music and write it down? And so we tried and we failed and it was awful. And we kept taking ear training and we kept advancing and we kept growing and we kept trying and we kept failing and we kept learning and we kept trying and we kept failing and we kept learning until my sophomore year when I was graduating theory, we sat down and our professor gave us four-part harmony, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, eight measures, and he gave us the key in one note. And then he played it six times. And to my surprise, not perfectly, but most of us filled in those notes just by listening. The more we practice listening to the leading of the Spirit, the more in tune we become with his leading. And then we're able to identify, I think that's God, let's go forward. I think that's God, let's go forward. It also works conversely. The more we ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit, it's not that he stops speaking, but we begin to grow deaf to his voice. Some of you say, well, God just doesn't lead me. The question is, have you been leadable? God the Spirit transforms us. He transforms us. He teaches us. He trains us. He transforms us. I was looking through these children catechisms. A catechisms is just a fancy word for uh, what some Christian parents use to uh, help their children memorize things, and it's usually in a question-answer form. And so the question-answer form was this, what can a person do to be a better Christian? And the answer was this, a person can become a better Christian by reading the Bible, praying, going to church, and telling others about Jesus. And I just imagine the parent saying this and the child reciting it back, and I just imagine me sitting there saying, because I know and you know people who for a long time have read the Bible, prayed, gone to church, and told others about Jesus. But they may be some of the meanest, harshest, critical, judgmental people, small-minded and small-hearted that you've ever met. 
So this is not simply a guarantee. These things in themselves are not bad, but it's not a simple guarantee that this is transformation. So what is transformation? And some of you are type A and you're very disciplined people. You don't need the Spirit to do any of these things. So what do we need the Spirit for? Intergalatians 5, 16 through 24. Did you like how epic that was? Intergalatians 5, 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you wanna do. Side note, for some of you who are very spiritually sensitive people and you're filled with doubt and you constantly doubt your salvation, take comfort in this. If there is a war going on inside of you, you're alive. Dead people don't fight. I think somebody need to hear that. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. <gasps> Couldn't do it in one breath. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Whenever I tend to think about transformation and being changed, for me, it's always Galatians 5. Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more patient? Am I becoming more self-controlled? Am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? And guess who I need to do that? Someone stronger than me? Someone wiser than me? Someone who's present with me? A helper. Because I can't make myself more loving. I don't know if you've tried. I can't make myself more patient. I can't make myself less angry. And in the list of all these sins that it just listed, I in my own strength don't turn away from those. When I'm tempted, the Spirit has to help me change. That's transformation. That's what it looks like. It says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. So by the Spirit, we apply what's already true. By the Spirit, we apply what's already true. There's a story of Michelangelo and he was commissioned to create a sculpture uh, for this cathedral in Italy. And he was given this block of marble that everyone, Da Vinci walked up to it, everyone at that time looked at this block of marble and said, that is worthless. I don't know how you're gonna do anything from this block of marble. It's such a bad thing, a bad starting place, bad point to begin with. Over the next four years, Michelangelo woke up and he chipped away and he woke up and he chipped away and he brought his tools to the marble and he chipped away. After four years, he came up with what we know as David from the Bible. It's one of the greatest sculptures in the history of the world. And the Pope came to him after he did this and he said, I don't know how you've done this. And he, Michelangelo said something like this, simple. I just chipped away everything, not David. And friends, we got voices in our heads. We got things said to us or done to us in the past. We got ways that we're against ourselves. We're our own worst enemies. And we think maybe subconsciously or consciously, maybe we even articulated, God, how could you use this block 
the Spirit's aim is to come to us and to say, I see who you really are. I see who you've been made to be, and it's good. And I'm going to chip away everything, not you. Will you let me? This is why we sing songs about surrender. This is why we talk about participating with God. Because God comes to me and says, I'm going to chip away everything, not Chad. And I'm like, that's too hard. It's too painful. There's too much there. It's such a slow-going process. I'm so tired of myself in these places. And God says, I see potential. I see possibility. And I believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Will you let down your guard and open up your heart? And whenever I think about what does it mean that we're transformed by the Trinity, it's a person with a more open heart. Not shut down with fear. Not closed up with spite or hatred or guilt or shame. This is the aim of the painting. There's something more to it is what God, is what the artist is trying to show, that the more you meditate on this, you start to realize that the Trinity is almost converging on you and that you are meant to move from spectator to participant. That now there's a space at this table for you and you may not even have realized it. That's what it does. You stand before it and you look at it and you're the fourth person participating in this love dynamic of the Trinity. That changes us. And the Holy Spirit, he convinces us. He's the one who convinces us. You're here today and you think, I don't know. I don't know if I believe what Jesus said. I don't know if I believe what Jesus says. I don't know if it's too good to be true that God loves us. It is. But the Holy Spirit convinces us of the teachings and the person of Christ so that we might enter in the Trinity through him. Let's pray together. Father, what a concept. <laughs> what a tradition we've been a part of to claim that we believe in one God and yet this God has three persons and three expressions. What a mystery. What immensity and yet what intimacy that we're in you and you're in us and you're in the church and we exist as community and in this community you change us. Help us. Some of us have lost our way. Remind us of your truth. Some of us were stuck on our failures and we didn't understand that we just needed to learn from them. Help us. Some of us, we've been doing things in our own strength and our own power, and they're actually pretty easy to do, but when it comes down to being really transformed, we haven't got very far. Help us. We need you. For your sake, for the sake of the Son, for the glory of the Father, and by the power of the Spirit, we pray.